We're continuing in our series in the book of Philemon, which is uh, one of the shortest books in the Bible. It's only 25 verses. It's in your New Testament. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn there. Uh, if, you can't, if you don't know where it is, just look in your index. If you're trying to you know, flip through your New Testament and you're thinking, I'm, I don't want my neighbor to know, I don't know where that is. When, if you hit the book of Hebrews, you've just gone past it, just go one book back, and uh, it ends the, uh, uh, the, 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 the undoubted writings uh, for, by some scholars of Paul. Uh, this is, uh, if you've been here, you know that this is um, the story of or the letter that Paul, who is in prison, has written to a Christian named Philemon in Colossae. Uh, he hosts the church there in his home, and uh, he owns a slave. This slave escapes, runs to Paul. Paul converts him to Christianity. He receives Christ. And then Paul sends him back to his master with this letter. And uh, we've been looking at the nuances of this letter and in some cases, the very difficult things that uh, uh, Paul says to Philemon and seeking to apply that to how you and I as Christians today engage with a world uh, that so often has a very different ethic, uh, a different morality, a different understanding of how we should act as followers of Christ. And so we're going to be picking up in verses 17 through 21 of Philemon. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn, to me to, turn with me to Philemon, verse 17. There's only one chapter, so there's no chapter designation. Verse 17, Paul writes, So if you, Philemon, consider me your partner, <clears throat> receive him, Onesimus, as you would receive me. If Onesimus has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, Not to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Mm. May God add his blessing, his understanding to this, the reading of his holy and perfect word. About 300 years before Christ was born, there was a particular school of thought that emerged in first the Greek empire and then became prevalent in the Roman empire, and it was a school of thought known as Stoicism. Now, it was a perspective that honored and respected logic. They taught that the truly wise person should be unmoved by passion, whether it be grief or joy, whether it be pain or pleasure, the wise person holds fast to logic. Now, about the same time, another school of thought emerged called Epicureanism. So you have Stoicism and Epicureanism. Now, Epicureanism was on the other side of the spectrum. Uh, they taught that the best way to be wise was to give in a little to joy to seek pleasure so that one could focus on learning and wisdom. Now, by the time we get to the age of the church, after Christ has been crucified, raised from the dead, and has ascended into heaven, what really has happened is as those two schools, as life does, has spun off to the far ends of the spectrum. So stoicism is just suck it up, uh, no matter what goes on, avoid pleasure, power through pain, 
That's how you find wisdom. And Epicureanism was, man, let's just do what's fun. And so the Epicureans were folks who sort of, you know, reveled in all kinds of, well, you, you get the point. Now, before we get a little weird, these two schools of thought probably are just as prevalent today as they were back then. We don't use those terms, but you all know probably people who just suck it up and power through, and then the people who are always looking for the next pleasure in life, who are looking for the, the joy of entertainment uh, with the idea that if they can just have all of their needs met to excess, then they can focus on the nicer things in life. Now, the reason I set this up for you is because about 150 years before Christ, so it begins about 300 years before Christ, these two schools, about 150 years before Christ, uh, there was a famous Epicurean philosopher who was at the Colosseum in Rome. And he was watching the gladiatorial combat matches there in the Colosseum. Now, it may interest you that attending gladiatorial combat was expressly forbidden for Christians. Now, it may also interest you that this, it wasn't Rome that forbade Christians from going to gladiatorial combats. As a matter of fact, the Romans loved Christians at gladiatorial combats because they were part of the entertainment. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, when they first started using Christians, a lot of the gladiators, as they engaged with these Christians, and just for the sake of our mixed audience here, you know what I'm talking about, that the Christians refused to fight back, and because of that, the gladiators stopped trying to do what gladiators do, and it got so bad that the Romans had to start using wild animals to do the deed. Well, these gladiators, who were nothing more than warrior slaves... Slaves who were forced to fight uh, to the ultimate end were forced to battle one another. And as fans, as, as this philosopher was, was surrounded by all these fans, by the way, the word fan is really just a shortened version of the word fanatic. Do you all know any fanatics? There used to be a lot of Denver Broncos fanatics. I haven't seen many the past week or so. Well, this philosopher who was, in who was in attendance that day, his name was Marius the Epicurean. And he would later write about that experience sitting in the Colosseum watching this. And he would say these words, What is needed is the heart that would make it impossible to look upon such a spectacle. And the future would belong to the force that could create that heart. Now, I had to really resist the urge just preaching on Marius the Epicurean because I'm supposed to preach on the Bible, not, not Marius. But that phrase is just filled with stuff. You see, today we're looking at verses 17 through 21 in the letter of Philemon. And in verse 17, Paul encourages Philemon to receive him, Onesimus, as you would receive me. Now, one of the beautiful things about this book, and I hope that you've begun the past couple of weeks, we didn't overtly say it, but we, we said it kind of subversively. But I hope that you were beginning to pick it up in preparation for this morning's message. Is, is that since this letter was most likely written prior to Paul writing the other letters of the New Testament, this image of slavery to explain both our relationship to sin and brokenness and to, re, uh, to, to explain uh, what it was Christ has done 
is easily noticeable in that book, especially when you read it in the context of having read books like Romans, Philippians, Colossians. For example, in Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about how you and I are slaves to sin before Christ freed us. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, that famous passage, Paul writes, There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In Philippians chapter 2 and in Romans chapter 15, Paul tells us that Christ became a slave for us. You see, Philemon is not just a letter about how this person, Philemon, needs to rethink his life. It is an explanation of what Christ has done in our lives. So this morning I want to share with you four statements about the result of the gospel. As a result of the gospel, we, like Philemon, receive others as we would Christ. Now this letter could just as easily be written to us from Jesus Christ as we figure out what it means to live in a broken world. Now some historians have suggested that Marius, the Epicurean who said that statement earlier, would be so moved by this experience in the Colosseum and having considered the supreme wisdom, the ancient writings tell us, Marius was thinking about the supreme wisdom of the God that the Christians were proclaiming. He was overwhelmed by this idea of divine wisdom from God that he converted to Christianity. Now, they're not all in agreement on this, but let's just go with it for this morning. You see, it's not an accident that the Holy Spirit, that you and I know as the Holy Spirit, was anciently referred to as the Hagia Sophia, or word-for-word translated, the Holy Wisdom. To say Holy Spirit and Holy Wisdom is essentially the same thing, according to the ancient Christians of the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th centuries. And interestingly, that name, Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom, would ultimately be given to one of the greatest cathedrals built in the Roman capital city of Constantinople. Now, you're thinking, wait a minute, I thought the ancient Roman city was Rome. Well, it was, but after Rome became a Christian nation, it's typically not referred to by historians any longer as the Roman Empire, but as the Byzantine Empire, but they're essentially the same empires. That cathedral was built, and that cathedral, the Hagia Sophia, the Holy Wisdom, the Holy Spirit, stands to this day. It was eventually made into a mosque after the Turks conquered the Byzantines in 1453. It was then turned into a museum in the modern age, and it now sits empty in Constantinople. One of the wonders of the world has the largest dome that in today's architectural standards is impossible to duplicate. You see, this force that Marius the Epicurean, who became Marius the Christian, this force that changed him, this force that can literally change the heart, was the Christian faith. 
For about a thousand years, the Christian faith forged the heart of a civilization. Our forebears lived into this text that was read today as they received people from all walks of life as they were receiving Christ. For a thousand years, Christianity changed the world. It was during this thousand years that a place for sick people was developed so that they could be treated. You know them as hospitals. Before that, only the wealthy could afford the care of a physician. The church developed hospitals so that everyone would have access to health care. During the thousand years, places of learning were built to educate and train the common person. You know them as universities. Before that, only the wealthy, only the powerful who could afford to employ a philosopher to teach their children, only they were educated. During that thousand years, church buildings were opened to children who were abandoned by their parents because of poverty or disability. You know them today as orphanages. Before that, infants were left in the garbage dump to live or survive on the goodwill of the older children who may have survived and called those dumps their home. Each one of these initiatives were attacked and belittled as messing with the, quote, social order. Even within the church, these institutions were attacked. There's a wonderful story about a guy named Basil the Great, a great preacher of his time. And every morning he would get up and he would go to the dump and he would literally pick up the infants that had been abandoned the night before. He would bring them back to the church and feed them, and educate them, and raise them. And his own church members got angry with him. This is a place for worship, not a place to take care of children, they would argue. But Basil was a stubborn man, and he was able to survive the critiques and complaints of his members. And do you know that history tells us that some of the greatest statesmen, some of the generals who would go on and defend the Byzantine Empire from pagan hordes, some of the greatest preachers of the ancient world started out in Basil the Great's orphanage. Whether it was the sick, the poor, the uneducated, the unwanted child, Christians have always received others as we receive Christ. As a result of the gospel, we are reminded of our redemption. In verse 18, Paul writes, If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. That's my favorite, ver That's my favorite sentence in the whole book. Wow! I guess it was the last part of verse 19 that really gets me to say nothing of your owing me your own self. What other scriptures come to mind when you hear that? Forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of those against us? Or how about Matthew 7 verse 5 when Jesus says, 
First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Or how about John chapter 8, verse 7, when the woman was caught in adultery, and the crowd stands with stones in hand, ready to extend their rightful retribution, and Jesus says, go ahead, but let the one without sin cast the first stone. Now, a few weeks ago, I asked you if you had seen, if you also had seen that, uh, for that, 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 that for most of us, it seems to be easier for us to judge the actions of others when it is things that we don't struggle with. Or, or, or even better yet, it seems that we tend to judge more lightly those who struggle with the same things we struggle with. That's not intended to sneak up on you. That's intended to confront us with our natural way we engage with others. And the words that Paul writes to Philemon ought to echo in our minds. Be reminded of what you and I have been forgiven of. Remember what things you struggled with. This sentence that Paul says of all of the sentences he writes in this book is the real punch in the eye for Philemon. Paul admits that Onesimus indeed owes him. Onesimus had done wrong. And then Paul reminds Philemon of all that he owes to Paul. This is the beauty of regular confession and repentance. They are words that are unpopular today, even among Christians. For centuries, Christians have been encouraged to pray at least three times a day. Actually, anciently, it was up to seven times a day. But for the everyday Christian, the, the layman, the layman is required, the layperson is required to pray three times a day. Morning, Noon and night. We have writings, ancient copies of what these prayers looked like that they would offer. And one of these prayers was a prayer of confession. And this prayer of confession, are you ready? Pay attention to this part. This prayer of confession was to be prayed in the morning. Now, I don't know about you. I'm kind of curious, how much sinning do you do between the time you wake up in the morning and then do your morning prayer? And I remember as a, as a younger preacher, <clears throat> knowing my own struggles, a prayer of confession probably would have been more effective if I waited and saved it until the evening. Uh, the things that I do during the day substantiate a prayer of confession. I pray that you also recognize that in your life. But as I grow older, I'm beginning to understand, I'm beginning to see the effectiveness of why a prayer of confession ought to be prayed first thing in the morning. I think it's less about ensuring that I receive forgiveness for my own sins, and it's more about extending grace to others throughout the day. What would it look like if you first, when you woke up, you said, merciful God, I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and by what I have left undone. 
I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I am truly sorry, and I humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me and forgive me. That I may delight in your will, walk in your ways to the glory of your name. It hit me. You see, as I am reminded first thing in the morning of the grace that I have received already, I am more likely to extend that grace to others throughout the day so that I might delight in God, so that I might walk in the ways of God, so that I might live to the glory of God's name. As a result of the gospel, we refresh the heart of Christ. We've kind of fallen in, I didn't put this in my manuscript because I wasn't sure if I wanted to say it, but I've decided I want to say it. That's always dangerous, isn't it, Pastor Drew? We live in a world, especially in the church, in the church world, that we say, oh, no, no we, I, I'm, I'm always sinning. There's nothing that I can do. And, and, and I understand that. And by the way, that's theologically accurate, but it's practically ridiculous. There are things you and I can do that please God. If you're in a small group looking at the sermons, you're going to look at some passages of Scripture that, that talk about how the Bible witnesses to what you and I can do to please God. Do you want to please God? Do you want to please other people in your life? Do you want to please your spouse, your children, your coworkers, your boss? How much more would you want to please God? This little book of Philemon is more than just a personal letter to Philemon about how his relationship with Onesimus has been changed. You know, the the, uh, first relationship of master and slave to a new relationship of brothers in Christ. And today we're beginning to wind down this series. Next Sunday's sermon won't be near as, as harsh or hard, and it's not me that makes it, it's the Scriptures. We've witnessed how Paul sought to persuade Philemon, the Christian slaveholder, that through Christ we Christians do not have the option to blindly accept the ethics of the world as our own. We are called as Christians to a higher standard. We're called to a different life. And it is a life that will inevitably set us against the world and a culture that does not take kindly to being forced to look deeply at its own conventions, its own traditions, its own ways of doing business, of having them tried and tested in the shadow of the cross. You see, life lived in the shadow of the cross must be lived differently. When we gaze upon the cross, both with Christ on it and with Christ not on it, it has to change us. It makes the world different. And you and I are called to live our lives so that the heart of Christ is refreshed. As a result of the gospel, we rejoice. As a result of the gospel, we rejoice in the gift of living generously. 
Paul concludes this final appeal for Onesimus with these words. Verse 21. Confident of your obedience. This is my second favorite. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. As a father, dads, wouldn't that be awesome if our children would do more than we say? My children do do more than I say. I keep a notebook. It's a red leather notebook. I have some other ones, but I got a bunch of red ones, and you'll be seeing those for the next couple of years. Sometimes the staff make fun of me because I don't go anywhere without that notebook. Within that notebook are notes from daily meetings with staff and lay leaders, plans, both personal plans and ideas about identity, vision, and mission for this church. Within that notebook are financial notes, sermon preparation ideas, and the sins of the elders that I know about. (laughs) Shauna, did you lock the office? (laughs) In my (laughs) certain... That wasn't in my manuscript either. In my notebook... I also have drafted out my sermon ideas that go months and months ahead. And in this series of sermons, these four weeks, I I have the Philippians texts mapped out and what I want to say about each text, but I have a star next to the one today. And I put that star in there a month or so ago. And the reason I put that star there is because that this message in this series is the most important. Because in this message, in this section of Philemon is the gospel. We rejoice in the gift of living generously. Now, now I'm not talking about tithes and offerings, although you, you're welcome to do that. <laughs> but I'm talking about, are we living generously with others? Are you generous with your spouse? Don't answer that, Shauna. Are you generous with your children? Are you generous with the person taking your order at the coffee shop, the restaurant? I try to make it a habit to tell the person giving me my cup of coffee or my order, thank you very much, I appreciate you, and I hope you have a blessed day. You should see some of their faces. (laughs) My dad was always a horrible, horrible tipper. He never believed that the new standard for tipping was 15%. He just thought that was crazy. And I can't tell you how many times Sean and I have been to dinner with him. He leaves 10% and we start to walk out and I say, oh, I forgot something. I go back and put down another five. (laughs) Dad could be cheap. No offense, Dad. Except, are you ready for this? Except when the service was terrible. When the service was terrible... He tipped 20%. I asked him one time, I said, Dad, why do you tip so well when the service is terrible, but when the service is is great, you're cheap? He said, Son, more than likely the reason they were so bad at their service is either they had a bad customer before us or their boss is a, well, not a nice guy. (laughs) Dad worked construction. 
He said, son, I leave them a little extra just because they need it. And maybe it will brighten their day or at least help the next customer have a better experience. You see, true generosity is undeserved. If it's deserved, it's not generosity. It's your pay. But true generosity is undeserved. And it is no accident that we say from this pulpit time and time again, we serve a generous God. And that is the gospel. Merciful God, in our brokenness, you have shown us grace. You have given us what we do not deserve. In our rebellion, you have shown us mercy. You have not given us what we do deserve. And we praise you for your generosity of grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. For we have been redeemed not by our own efforts, but solely because of Jesus Christ. And for that, we bow the head, we bend the knee, and we thank you. And we promise in this place, O oh God, to live our lives this week so as to refresh your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.